This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. My name is Sam. And I'm Melissa. I grew up in the FLDS community. It is a polygamous group run by Warren Jeffs, which I moved out of when I was 18 years old. I was raised LDS. Sam and I have been married for eight years and have two beautiful babies together. Yes, we do. And we are very excited to be back here with you and to welcome on a very special guest, Mike King. He is from the YouTube video Profiling Evil. Very interesting YouTube channel. Yes, and podcast. Yes. He also has a couple books out, um, Deceived, all about the Zion Society, and She Knew No Fear. And so we will put both of those books linked. He has written many other books, has done amazing work in so many things that I can't even list them all, but we are just so excited to have him and hear some of the stories about his dealings with the FLDS community. So thank you so much, Mike, for being here. Oh, holy cow. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, I, I think back, it was months ago, uh, probably eight months ago when I first reached out to the two of you to get a little insight, uh, knowing that Sam was one of those hooligans that were running around town while I was <laughs> trying to arrest uh, Warren Jeffs. Yeah, probably throwing rocks at your cars. And... You, ne- you never caught me, did you? <laughs> no. In fact, Sam, one of the funniest things I remember is I took my family one day uh, into the community, uh, we we were down and uh, driving around, and of course, there's always a cadre of vehicles that would follow you back in those days, led by Willie Jessup's band of uh, men, yeah. and uh, we uh, made our way over to the far east side of town where the elk pens were and where the animals and and uh, I think some of the additional stuff that that used to be in the zoo. Yep. And uh, we were pulled up alongside the fence, and, and uh, as uh, we were standing there, a carload of kids that were probably in their uh, 14 to 16-year-old age range came by, and uh, they uh, flipped us off. So, <laughs> Just give you a nice warm welcome, welcome to the community. To the community. That's, right. That's right. Welcome to Hilldale. Oh, oh my word. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's funny and also very surprising. Uh, we were taught that that was a, a bad thing to do but i guess i guess that's how they felt about you in that moment <laughs> that you know i'm not sure what prompted it because way. i i know i would always go down there on a regular basis uh under the authority of the attorney general and i'd stop in the store and i'd try to communicate and i'd stop and talk to people and of course uh, we're going to talk all about those kinds of things but uh the reception was always very cold and uh it was always very interesting to be in the community Wow. Well, we can't wait to get into this and then see kind of what your experience was like. And I can share some of my uh, thoughts on maybe why your experience was that way. Um, But but let's kind of start at the beginning. What is it that? uh, Well, first of all, could you uh, tell our viewers a little bit about what what your YouTube channel is about? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Profiling evil. We actually, during the original days of COVID, I think my children over the course of my uh, lifetime have gotten so tired of hearing old cop stories that they suggested that maybe I ought to just get on uh, YouTube one night and yammer for a minute and talk about (laughs) some case that I handled. 
And uh, I'll be darned, we we uh, got on and it somehow resonated with people. We've now grown to 130,000 subscribers and, wow. and uh, we're breaking the 10 uh, million view mark. And it's wow. just uh, been an amazing experience. But what, you, what Profiling Evil is meant to do, there's a lot of true crime channels out there and a lot of people who are speculating with no understanding of the investigative process and uh a lot of times the opinions expressed are uh really opinionated and really off track and so what i try to do is spend a little more time talking about the criminal investigative process and helping people to understand a little more of what the pros and cons are to many of the things that they're jumping to conclusions on in hopes because I believe people are really intelligent that they'll look at these things a little differently and maybe a little more patiently as they wait for criminal cases to unfold. So that's kind of what we're all about is training, uh, educating and entertaining a little bit. That's right. awesome. Yeah. It's so easy. Um, out outsiders, or if you don't have any idea of the process that it takes, it's very easy to pass judgment and we even see that, you know, when even just talking about the FLDS, you know, just bringing attention can help bring a lot of compassion along with awareness. It's much easier to have compassion for those communities, for the law enforcement, for everybody when you have that side of the story. So, And for those of us that, that really feel there are some people in danger, like yourself and, and us now, uh, yes, sharing this information or, or trying to confront certain people may cause a lot of enemies, but... Uh, we do it for the few people that it will help, right? You know, you're exactly right. And you think about your own experience, Sam. <clears throat> it takes an incredible amount of confidence to, after you have consumed, drank the Kool-Aid, consumed an ideology, to discover that there are pieces and parts of it that are broken and really destructive. And... Uh, it's a real unique individual that can say, I'm going to change the swim lane I'm in and go a different direction because I now understand how wrong I was. And, and we, you know, I, we saw it early on when I was investigating cases like uh, daycare providers who uh, hurt and or, or injured children in uh, the daycare that they were in charge of parents who would go to the defense of that daycare provider because if they didn't it meant that they put their child in harm's way and that was just too big of a step for those parents to take and and we see the same thing especially when it comes to cult behaviors and uh and cult is not a negative term there are destructive cults and there are cults that are not destructive but uh, we, we have that same thing as people come to understand the destructive nature of a cult. If they've invested their whole life, brought their children like your mom and dad into it, uh, or, or have invested everything they have financially, man, that is a big challenge to say, I was wrong, and I put a whole bunch of people at risk. Yeah. Well, and we've talked before about Sam's father. You know, at this point, he's 84 years old, and as much as you in your heart were like, oh, we would hope that his parents would leave at 84 years old when your entire life's been invested and your wives are still out there. Even if you did stop leaving, what good would come from like leaving your family? You know, not what good would come, but 
Yeah, there's a whole so other it's element. To it's hard to switch at yeah. that point when you're so deep and so invested <laughs> in your entire life and your entire family is still in it. I can't even imagine if that would even be a possibility at this point. Even if he did stop believing it, would you back out at that point? Yeah, yeah a- absolutely. And, and you know, I, I knew your dad. Uh, of course, I don't know him today, but I knew him back then. It was always an adversarial role whenever I came to Dodge. And uh, <laughs> But, uh, again, imagine for them, your folks, as they come to the realities of some of the things that Warren did, for instance, or if they're even questioning the belief system, how hard that would be knowing that you brought in, I can't even remember, uh, Sam, 30 siblings or something. Is that? Yeah. 35. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine, imagine how you two feel about those two little tykes running around your house. If you let them astray in some way, imagine that times 35. Yeah. yeah, I can't, can't even imagine. It's, uh, it's, it's tough. And, and I was uh, one of the, I guess you could say, lucky ones that, that got out at a younger age, at 18. But some of these men and women, I mean, they span their whole adult lives. I mean, up, up into the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, in, in this and believing and teaching people about this. And at that point, even if they find out that something is wrong, to accept that they had been wrong their entire life or, you know, a good part of their life. It's just, I I can't imagine how difficult that would be for them. Yeah. Yeah. And real quick, I do want to do a shout out. Um, Starting on Thanksgiving, we are going to be doing a fundraiser. You'll be able to see the donation button below for holding out um, help. And that's an organization that when people do leave polygamous groups, they can go there. So no matter what age, if you are leaving or if you're watching this and you're in transition of leaving an FLDS or any um, polygamous community, you can reach out to them and they help people be able to get educations, have support to be able to find jobs and those type of things. So that is our Christmas cause. <laughs> so anybody's interested in donating to that cause, there will be links below on this video. Yes. And thank you all in advance. Well, you know, and I got, I got to just say, I, I'll be one of those donating uh, f- folks. Think about <clears throat> how difficult it would be at a young age, especially your teenage years, to go and step out and get a place to live and try to trust a community that you'd spent your whole life being told was evil and was your pathway to hell. And uh, uh, anything that can be done to help, I just applaud you too. And thanks for doing it because there's a lot of folks who stay because they don't know how to leave. Yes, very, very true, especially the women, especially or those that don't have family members already out. Very, very challenging. So, yeah. So, thank you. And I guess my first question for you, Mike, well, I mean, other than a little bit about your podcast, is um, what were your career positions that initially got you involved with the FLDS community? <laughs> Well, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of an old guy now and uh back in in uh 1979 I started as a police officer and uh by uh the the mid 80s I had accepted a job in the county attorney's office as an investigator. Uh I I was working up in the Ogden area so it was the Weber County Attorney's office. And one particular day, I walked into the office. I was I was living the police officer's dream. I was running an undercover 
uh, sting task force that was buying stolen cars. And we were working our way up the chain into chop shops and other kinds of things. Wow. And I, I walked into the county attorney's office and the uh, receptionist there said, hey, I need you to talk to this woman who's been waiting for an hour for an investigator. So I was, I was the last person they wanted to choose to do this. But they said, can you just talk to her for a moment, find out what she's got, and then we'll refer, refer it over to some of the other investigators in the office. So I approached her, and, and just a beautiful 23-year-old woman, she stood and uh, very confidently shook my hand, and she said, I'm involved in a cult that's sexually abusing children. Do you have a minute to talk to me? And, you know, you think about how just that statement that I just made impacts you. Uh, I'm trying to act like I hear this every single day, uh, but that launched me into an investigation that, that is what the book Deceived is about. And I do want to mention if people buy that book Deceived, I don't get any of the proceeds. We're using all the money from Deceived to actually build a new children's advocacy center, a place where children can go and get medical and and uh, forensic investigative support. They can be prepared for court. They can get uh, put into foster care and all kinds of things. Oh, but uh, wow. this case ended up uh, consuming the next three years of my life, and we ultimately were able to, with 70 police officers, raid this compound and uh, take 32 children and get them into protective custody. Eventually, uh, 12 individuals were convicted of serious sexual crimes against children. In fact, um, on the Dr. Phil show, I met the children 30 years after this event. First time I'd met them since they were little kids. And it was a very emotional moment for me. And I, I said to Dr. Phil, uh, I said, you know, these children endured more than 4,000 rapes during their lifetime. And uh, and the girls stepped up on the show and said, double it. And, uh, and so to give you a feel of how um, horrendous that was, well, that kind of propelled me into the cult world. And I was sent and uh, started uh, some connections with the FBI, was ultimately trained as a criminal profiler and started looking at serial predators, primarily uh, in cult settings. It, it was about that time in the early 90s. If it, You wouldn't remember this, but if you looked it up historically, there was a period that was kind of affectionately called the Satanic Panic Era, and everybody believed that Satan was involved in every abuse that happened. Mm. Well, the Utah legislature took it serious enough that they actually committed a huge amount of money and put together a task force to go out and look at all allegations of ritualistic abuse. And, uh, and so I ended up leading that group. And for a wow. number of years, uh, that took me to every polygamous community in the state of Utah, as well as those closed societies. And I want to kind of separate them because um, it wasn't an assault on polygamy. It was an assault on the closed society and that mentality that occurs in those. Uh, and that eventually uh, had me down in, in Colorado City, Hilldale, on a regular basis. Wow. Oof. Oh, my goodness. I'm like tearing you are, up. <laughs> you were right in the middle of all of this, then, it sounds like. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and yes, I was. <laughs> 
And, and of course, we'll, we'll kind of focus on the FLDS because that's uh, where I'm from. But uh, you say that you went to all, all or at least a lot of the polygamous groups. Now, that's a lot, isn't it, in Utah? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the, the largest concentration of uh, groups living a plural lifestyle are in the, the Utah area, as, as many people know. And folks, don't get wrapped around the axles about whether this was an LDS church thing or a polygamous thing. Polygamy started and was banned back in the 1800s, the late 1800s, the Latter-day Saint faith, while they held on to the belief that polygamy is something as it was practiced in the Bible that was important. They said it's against the law and uh, we're not going to do it any longer. But groups, namely even groups uh, down in Colorado City, Hilldale, weren't accepting that. And they continued to say, no, the church, LDS church has gone astray. We're going to stick with the doctrine as God intended. And so they continued to, to practice that and, and let it down that path. Yeah. And with all that rambling, I kind of forgot what the question was, Melissa. No, uh, so, just, just the number of polygamous groups in Utah. It, that there was oh, a lot. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a batch of them. And we had started a program in the Attorney General's office called Safe at Home. And we used that Safe at Home program as a way to go to the polygamous leaders in every community throughout the state and say, listen, we just want to instruct your people of what they can do if they're ever feeling threatened, if they're feeling, if they're being sexually abused. Because we heard the ghost stories, we knew the ghost stories, but it, those are such difficult cases to put together that we were only in isolated cases making a difference. And that would only lock down communities like yours, Sam, even more once you did that. And so uh, what we did is we approached folks like your father back then, Sam, and said, listen, as leaders of this community, do you have anything against us helping children understand that they don't need to be sexually abused? And of course, they would say, oh, we're 100 yeah. percent against that. And, uh, and then we would set up town halls where we'd come into town and we'd instruct. The downside of that was it was always a canned, prepared group of people who came in, accepted the instruction, said there's no problem, and then sent us on our way, and we were not able to get to the people that really needed to report things. And because of the control, as you've talked about on your show many times, and I think, Sam, we've even talked about individually, it was next to impossible for people to have a way to report out without being um, discovered from the internal mechanisms. Oh yes, very very difficult to <laughs> to especially for the women to to reach out in any way. And uh, so I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning of your FLDS experiences. And if do you remember the first time showing up to the Hilldale or Colorado City community? And if so, what was what was your first experience like? Well, the the first time was a meeting in the mayor's office uh, in that little tan building uh, in Hilldale. I know, I know it well. I know it well. Yeah, just just north of what now is uh, Willie Jessup's uh, Bandit Inn, uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> and there we met with city officials and uh, church leaders to talk, which is one and the same back in those days, oh, and yeah. uh, to talk about the concept and basically start this chess match of 
this is really important information. There's no way you would tell us no is there. And of course, them moving their chess piece saying, no, we're absolutely against anything abhorrent like that, and we'll make it available, and then setting up meetings. Uh, as time unfolded, we started making appearances where we didn't uh, lay groundwork so that people were prepared. And as upsetting as that was to many of the leaders in town, it was a way for us to start ingesting and kind of getting little burrs under the saddle of the organizational leadership in, in the community and let people know one-on-one that there were, um, there were avenues available to report if you needed to. From a legal standpoint, I mean, obviously the leaders of the church knew that there were underage marriages, right? And the people in the community knew that it was underage. Um, is that something that coming in, you kind of had to explain to them, like, this is also considered child abuse? Because sometimes I wonder, like, the yeah. young girls didn't, it's hard to even explain to them that that is child abuse when that's what they grow up with, knowing that they could be married at 14 or 15 or 16 years old. So to even understand the basis of that's abuse, um, is that something that had to be like confronted with everyone or did they know and they were trying to find that portion of it? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, Melissa, because the challenge is there are so many ghost stories, but in order for law enforcement to do something with a ghost story, you have to have evidence. And that evidence can either be uh, a combination of different kinds. In, in When we talk evidence for investigations, there are kind of four primary kinds of evidence. There's physical and forensic evidence like a pregnancy or uh, a physical assault. There's uh, eyewitness testimony. I saw so-and-so uh, in an, a relationship with such-and-such such a person. Uh, you have a confession, which you never we're going to get in that community no, no. Uh, where people say, yeah, I did it. Um, and, and then you have, uh, let's see, forensic. Uh, oh, and then you have the, this thing called circumstantial evidence, which is the A plus B always equals C kind of a thought of uh, this child uh, had a spiritual wedding to this adult and had a, baby and if we could have tested that baby and recovered dna we would be able to forensically tie them Th those circumstantial cases become incredibly powerful and when we look at criminal cases you have to do it based on a combination not just one thing so somebody saying i was uh uh given up as a child bride and i didn't want to do it but i did it is not as powerful as circumstantially tying a bunch of things together. Um, then what we did uh, later is we started adding behavioral evidence to help supplant uh, much of that. So it's really frustrating for the public because they hear a ghost story and they want immediate uh, damages assessed. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it. You got to follow the law. And even uh, saying that this child was given up in a, and an, I, I don't care what people say, a 14-year-old <laughs> is still a child, in my opinion. This yeah, child given up in a spiritual wedding, there's not a physical document. There's a spiritual document, maybe even a notation if you could ever get to the uh, sacred records of yeah, the right. church. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, 
it's still a child. And unless you can forensically tie that child's baby, for instance, to an adult, then you, you, all you have are ghost stories. And yeah, there were I, a batch of ghost stories in Colorado <laughs> City Hilldale. <laughs> I can only imagine. I, I even knew some. So uh, another challenge you had, which uh, you can share your thoughts on this, was I don't know if you ever tried this or not, but to try to get someone undercover in the community would have been impossible, right? Is that something yeah. you tried to do? No, no, no chance at all. The, the best we had were people like uh, the Washington County Sheriff's Office deputies who were kind of accepted because they'd been there generationally. Uh, a, a, a UPS driver, maybe, but uh, outside of that, uh, a visiting doctor coming in, then you, you had challenges of, it wasn't HIPAA back in those days, but still patient physician uh, protections. So, uh, and as you well know, you, you didn't move into that neighborhood and uh, plop up a, a new mailbox in front of your house and have anyone come over with cookies. Oh, no. No, no, no. Not at all. It's Sorry, just a side funny story here. Uh, you mentioned the UPS drivers. Uh, believe it or not, even though we looked at them as quote unquote bad people because they're wearing their, their brown shorts and their brown t shirts. So they're showing way too much skin for our community. <laughs> way too much. <clears throat> However, those UPS drivers got some prayers sent their way. I don't know if they knew that or not, but uh, I heard several stories of young people in their prayers praying that the UPS driver doesn't fall out of his truck <laughs> because the doors are always open. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> So anyway, just yeah. a funny story about that. But you know, and, and let me let me just ask you. I mean, uh, I I am having flashbacks of driving through uh, town. Uh, if I pulled up alongside you as you were walking down the street, what would our conversation consist of? Uh, me running as fast as I can. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like you talk about the ultimate boogeyman because he also represents a carnal world. Yep. Uh, it, it just isn't going to happen, in my opinion. Well, well, and we were afraid that anyone from the outside was not only mentally, but physically trying to hurt us. Uh, yeah. So if someone, if I was walking down the street and someone with short sleeves pulled up and tried to talk to me, I would assume that they were trying to hurt me in some way, just be based on what I'd been told growing up. And so, the raids, the previous raids, and, and the raids were and, talked about a lot. Yeah, yeah. Or that they were trying to take me away from my family or something. So, yeah, I can only imagine the, the difficult task you were you were up against there. Um, do you, did, at some point, did you start making headway somehow? Like, what, what did it kind of all turn into for you? Uh, no, not during not during my years <clears throat> was there much headway. There there was relationships that were created that were um, again uh, controversial relationships. I mean, uh, I I uh, tried to get into uh, meet with the prophet on many occasions. I had folks like Willie Jessup, who was a uh, a rival. We we uh, didn't like each other. We had to play fairly in the sandbox together because we knew that uh, it could politically look bad for either one of us. 
And, uh, and when I finally uh, went and met with Willie a few months ago, uh, when, when he picked up the phone, I mean, it was still, you could tell we did not like each other. And uh, we ended up spending eight hours together uh, that day and really talked through a bunch of the ghost stories. And Willie shared an incredible amount, maybe part in part because of his own redemptive process to whatever level people might believe that's happening um, to, to try to clean the slate because he was duped as, as many of you were. Oh, and, yes. uh, but, but as far as saying, did we make progress? No, we accomplished goals like getting safe at home programs introduced into the community, getting chances to talk to select groups that would show up. But um, to use a term that you might be very familiar with down there, an old farming term I learned from my grandfather, we weren't getting the water to the end of the row to oh, the yes. people that needed it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very, very familiar. So with how, many, how many years did that go on or how long were you involved with it or where did it take a turn to where um, between then and when Warren Jeffs, there was something that you guys could use to be able to try to go after him? So uh, there were a number of... Um, uh, polygamous communities that I was working with, with allegations of sexual abuse of children that uh, took us throughout the state. Uh, some of those touched into the FLDS community, but it, uh, and I worked the uh, FLDS community off and on through 2004, so almost 14 years when I finally retired. And it was shortly after that, of course, that, um, that uh, um, Warren was arrested. Uh, okay. Many Again, many of the things that happened, uh, I learned just like you did watching the news uh, as it unfolded. So what I had is more historical knowledge than knowledge of the day he was arrested. I remember taking Willie, though, over to the church and walking it through the entire process the day Warren escaped federal custody when the raid occurred on the church during that church meeting that Sunday morning. And uh, and where how Willie uh, drove the prophet through a barricade and down into the river bottoms and and of course uh, for for him it was a very uh, heroic and historic moment and uh, but it was interesting to walk through and and understand many of the things that were happening there. Uh, I spent a lot of time, frankly, looking at things like the children's cemetery because of. Uh, ghost stories surrounding children who were uh, born and buried without benefit of getting a death certificate or a birth certificate and uh, things like that that uh, happened during my period. So kind of look at what I was doing as a time of laying the groundwork. And uh, we were actually changing the way that investigators were thinking of these kinds of crimes. So again, if you go back to the 90s and the satanic panic and the formation of the Ritual Crimes Against Children Task Force, what we did after investigating about 300 of these kinds of cases is we came to the determination that law enforcement needs to quit thinking about the voodoo of religion and focus on the thing that they're good at, which is the elements of crime, of what crime. it takes for a child abuse, what it takes for a rape of a child, and create criminal cases around that. And then you can introduce all the wacky 
theology later down the road during a sentencing hearing, but don't don't make this an issue about freedom of religion or anything else. Make it about what we know, which is violating of criminal law. Exactly. Yeah. When you're talking about um, being walked through the day that um, Willie Joseph got uh, Warren Jess out of that church, were you there when they went into the chapel? No. Okay, because okay, Sam, so, Sam was there, and I couldn't remember. remember that, yes. I couldn't remember if you'd been there or if Willie had walked you through that process later. But yeah, yeah. no, I, no, I we walked through you. just a few just a few months ago. Actually, is when we walked around and talked, and and uh, we, 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 yeah, like I said, we spent eight hours together that day, kind of going to all these secret places. Some of which I'm going to talk to Sam about and ask questions about. But tell me what that was like that day, Sam, because. Uh, I'll tell you from uh, the failure of law enforcement's perspective, uh, Willie and the security team that he had actually defeated law enforcement in their strategy to get Warren based yep. on using the very tactics that they were using against them, which was really quite, uh, I got to got to applaud the guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's something, I mean, I was a young boy at this time and uh, it was very frightening for me. Uh, we kind of knew that people were after Warren at this point, and and uh, so we were kind of all on high alert. But yeah, it was it was just a month. Or I, yeah, I believe it, I didn't know if it was Saturday or Sunday. It was one. It was a. It was one of those meetings in the morning. I thought it was a Saturday morning meeting. But anyway, we were. You, just, you probably right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because generally on Sundays were afternoon meetings until those came to a stop. So I believe it was a Saturday morning and just it was a normal meeting. We were all sitting, you know, the meeting was about to begin. We sang a song and then the person was saying a prayer and we all bowed our head and closed our eyes. And I, I heard some rustling at the, at, the, at the front door. I heard that someone was trying to get in and then kind of some shouting and some stuff, commotion going on over there. And we had, uh, had bodyguards at uh, the doors. I don't. I, I believe they even carried weapons. But we had some some man there, and so I hear that. And I look up, and by the time I look up, all of the leaders sitting on the stand were gone. They had just they had just run out the door, and of course, like you said, they escaped. And and you also mentioned that uh, Willie thought it was a heroic moment for us. It was very very um, faith building. That, yeah. that he that that Warren Jeffs was a true prophet, and that things were not going to be turned over to the authorities because God would always protect him from the authorities. That was kind of the way we looked at it. So you can imagine when Warren Jeffs actually got caught, it was it was like a slap in the face. I, I thought he would never get caught because he was. I, I assumed he would always be protected, but anyway. But yeah, it was a it was quite the the crazy experience. Was that uh, was it the FBI or was it someone else that, that came that day? There, there were a, there were a host of federal agents, including marshal okay. service. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure who it was, but I, I just knew that that uh, he got away and and somehow escaped law enforcement. So yeah, and isn't that interesting how these uh, leaders take any kind of a situation and they'll either put the failures on the backs of the members for not being faithful enough yep. or they'll put the escape on to further enhance that God is a hundred percent behind this person <laughs> and led them through uh, their own uh, red sea, you know, 
it, yeah. it just is incredible to me. But boy, oh boy, when there's failures, you <laughs> poor people that didn't pray hard enough are all responsible. Didn't pray hard enough or just aren't worthy, aren't good enough, aren't prepared for, for, for God to protect you or to help the leaders or whatever. So it's always, it's very easy to blame the members. You're correct. You're correct. Yeah. And that's the kind of rhetoric that even still now, even the revelations that have come out this year from Warren um, in prison. And um, we had a member who just recently left that sent us all the most recent ones. So we have like these original copies and it's still the same rhetoric of, you know, okay, you guys have all been being wicked. And so now you have to be better and better and better. And the rules are getting just more and more and more intense. And right when you think that it can't get any more intense, you're like, how do, how do you even control them anymore? Like you're controlling what they eat, what they can and cannot, I mean, down to like whether or not they can drink milk and like normal fruits and onions and just down to the tiniest, tiniest thing. And then they still find ways to try to, get even more control to blame them for, you know, Warren just still not being released from prison. Yeah, they're still blaming the members that Warren hasn't been released yet. And it's still being prophesied that he will, that he will be released soon. Oh, yeah. And only the most faithful members will know where he is, yeah. was in one of the recent ones. And so it just continues. A lot of, a lot <laughs> of crazy on. stuff coming up for sure. So we're just hoping that we can uh, share this information and help anyone that, that hears it. But, so you, you mentioned that you were with Willie for a while and uh, you were you wanted to share some of those experiences and, and uh, I, I'm very interested to hear them. Well, you know, there were a couple of, couple of things that were interesting. And I, when I first found the two of you, uh, it, it really cracked me up because when you were just a little puppy, I used to... <laughs> I used to show up during uh, the one or two major town celebrations that you would have, and I would sit uh, with binoculars and watch the kids on the little train putting around town. And, and of course, you know, you, you really couldn't ever go anywhere without being under surveillance. But it was really frustrating for Willie's band of uh, men to do much about a police officer sitting there. I mean, I'd come in in an unmarked car that had antennas on it. There was no question that, you know, <laughs> number one, you don't belong in the neighborhood. And, uh, and then you, you know, you walk into the grocery store or something with a badge and a gun on it, it, it sends a pretty clear message. And you know, that within minutes of coming into town that you're under surveillance, but uh, I wanted to know about some of those things. Uh, I wanted to know about, the camera infrastructure, and uh, and we would use uh, when I was a young SWAT officer tactics for tailing people, uh, and I would and so it was always fun for me because I'd come into town and I'd see those same tactics that had been trained when I was a young SWAT officer being deployed on me. Somebody following me for a block while somebody else catches me on the next street, and it's like. <laughs> And, you know, and and, uh, and it was always a pickup truck with some big burly guy in it that that uh, you know followed you around. Um, but that was one of the things I wanted to know is I wanted to know about the camera infrastructure and and frankly how uh, the community was able to afford a camera infrastructure that was as sophisticated as it was. And and I don't know what your knowledge of that was as a kid, but um, you talk about today what a city might have in a camera infrastructure 
you go back to the early 90s and think about a community that was deploying those kinds of technologies, that's not a normal community. Right. No. No, no we knew there were cameras, and we, we, uh, we spotted a few around the community as far as in trees and, and that type of thing and on the, on the, the lamp or the, the power line posts and uh, some of the, the big compounds or walls around the community would have cameras on those walls. And uh, there are a lot of cameras that I didn't know about uh, that I learned about later, but you, you, you could kind of feel that you, there was, there was always an eye watching you somehow or another. And uh, it just felt that way. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe yeah. it wasn't always the case, but around the community, we didn't feel that we could really run off and do our own thing without being noticed. So there you go. And isn't that a, a powerfully intimidating capability that the leaders had over everyone else is all I've got to do is get you to believe that the three cameras you can see exist and are being monitored. And then somebody tells me there are a hundred more that you can't see. And right. uh, what a great way to get compliance. Well, and then of course they would use some of this information that they would gather, use it as revelation. They would say, Oh, God revealed that you did such and such and such. And then we were like, Whoa, there's no way they could have known that. So they must be receiving this directly from God. How did they so, know that I kissed Farmer Johnson's daughter behind the elk pen? How did they know? <laughs> yeah, you go. Mean, yeah, 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 you combine you combine the actual physical surveillance with the mentality that these men could read your minds. I mean, Sam had experiences where they would put the young boys in a room and they would just like look into their eyes and be, basically say that they know what they had done until they would confess. So you add those two tactics and it's like, that's just a lot of fear yeah. as a child. Sitting in that same town hall that, uh, that you mentioned in that same building, uh, we were all questioned, all me and the several of my brothers, if we had been doing certain things and uh, they would ask us questions that very likely all of the young men were, were doing. <laughs> But, but of course it came across as they, they knew somehow they knew that we were doing these things. And anyway, it, it was a uh, very interesting. They used a lot of tactics to keep us in line and to keep us believing that they were, that they were receiving revelation somehow. So, well, and somehow they were um, very successful and I'd like you to maybe speak to this for just a moment, Sam, but they were very successful in getting you to snitch on each other. Yes, yes. Uh, we felt that we, we felt that we had an obligation that if we saw something, we said something. And uh, I think a lot of that was because we assumed that if we saw something, God saw something. And so if we didn't say anything about it, then we were also in the wrong. And we were, in fact, they would say things like, if you see something, even if you weren't a part of it and don't say anything about it, you are just as bad, just as guilty as the person that did it because you didn't say anything about it. So <laughs> they would use tactics like that, that we felt that we had to. Yeah. I've had some of Sam's sisters have mentioned too. And like the, the women that we've interviewed before talking about that same where like, if you want to, it's another way <laughs> to earn favor. So in addition to like the fear of um, not having favor, you can also do things to lift your favor up, right? Like to be more favorable. And so, yeah, kind of snitching is a way to be able to raise up your status as well, proving that 
not only are you doing what's right, but you're making sure that everybody else is around you. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You know, uh, one of the other things that uh, Willie and I spend a lot of time talking about was uh, the marking over the doors or over gates that provided either <coughs> a safe haven or a uh, a public statement of how worthy this little family was. Don't you share kind of the, your the, memories the, the, of that? The, the, Zion. the Zion, is that correct? The, yes. the word Zion, yes. Yeah. So interestingly, those markings were not put on any of the homes when I was out there. So this was something that happened after the fact. and After Warren's arrest. Yes, after Warren's arrest and after I had moved out. I would say this these, this type of thing started happening in about 2010, 2011. And that, at that time, a lot of the church members were being split apart. There were some that were worthy enough to be members and others that weren't worthy enough. And so some were being rebaptized and being claimed to be the good members and the others would have to live in different parts of the home. And it was a whole mess. And it was at that moment, I believe, and it seemed that people started putting the, the, the word Zion above their doors, meaning this is a true member, true follower um, home. Uh, to kind of uh, as kind of a, like you said, a public statement that uh, we are the good families in the community, yeah. uh, and and that's kind of that's kind of what it seemed like. But but the actual word Zion was uh, in their mind uh, a, a place that everyone should be striving for, and a state of mind of perfection that everyone should be striving for. Uh, that will be a place that, that Jesus Christ can return and, and everyone that is righteous enough can be there with him. And there there are multiple sets of different like baptisms. So um, one of his cousins that had uh, stayed with us for a while, she, she said, you know, after he was um, incarcerated, after Warren was, she's like, so then they had the order and then there was the restoral order and then there was like the true restoral order. So I think she said that um, post him being <laughs> imprisoned, she had been baptized as a girl like one or two more times. And then by that time she was like kind of done with it and she ended up leaving. But the constant like rebaptism of the most elite and then the most elite and then the most elite um, continued onward. So there was always something, there was always something more that you should be striving for um, to get as close as you could to the idea of perfection. And yeah. They wanted to always keep them trying to be better. Uh, and to feel that they weren't good enough. So they had to try being more obedient, trying to do these things. It was also a very easy way to say, to tell the community, hey, these prophecies that we have promised would happen aren't happening because too many members of this community just aren't, they're not good enough. And so I, I think there was a lot of reasons for it, but uh, just, just to hold that power over people's head uh, is, you would think that it would make them run, but the, it seems that the more power they have over these people, the more they want to stick to it and prove that they can, that they can be good enough. So it's, it's interesting how that works. Yeah. It, I mean, isn't that, isn't that crazy? And, and you, and to go back and think um, like, 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 I don't know that I believe that John Barlow wanted this wacky end to happen the way it did. Um, I don't know that Rulin wanted things to go 
the way they ended up. Always wanted polygamy, always wanted plural marriage. Um, but when Warren came on the scene, that's when things really got wacky. You uh, always yeah. had violation of the law. <clears throat> yes. Yes. But uh, yeah. that's when things got but wacky. War- <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. But Warren, he wanted he wanted it all. He wanted all the power. He wanted all the say. He wanted all the money. He wanted all the, all, wives. All the wives. He wanted all the businesses. He just wanted everything. And so it, it came to a point where he was destroying. It didn't take him long to just destroy the community, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, just ripping apart families and, and, and selling businesses to take the money and forcing people out of their livelihoods. And it just ah, time after time and, and, and all of these this time that he was taking money from people, he was off doing things, which at this point, at this point, I had no idea, but he was off doing things that he was preaching against doing over the pulpit. And, and there we were giving him his money to be able to do these things. And it just, it just, it's infuriating now to me. The the difference is for him, it was under the instruction of God to understand things. I mean, that's how these wacky guys always pull it off is I don't want to do this, but I don't want to offend God. But uh, here's the standard for you, which is just plain malarkey. Um, I I get so frustrated. Now, the other thing that I really uh, wanted to spend some time with Willie on was uh, not only a little bit of time in the traditional cemetery uh, where some of the previous prophets had been buried and other kinds of things, but I was mostly interested in the baby cemetery because of uh, the ghost stories surrounding, again, those children. Not not that children were being murdered, but that there, there clearly was, uh, because of all of the incestuous relationships, there, there are, are statistics out there that bear up and support that there were uh, birth abnormalities and, um, and handicaps and other things that came from all of the inbreeding that was occurring higher right. than anywhere in the world. So that's that's just a hard fact that whether people there like it or not, they have to to deal with. But um, I, I was really troubled again by the little ones who either died because of birth defects or for some other reason that were disposed of without ever having a birth certificate or a death certificate. Can you, what can you speak to in that so, regard? Yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you the only thing I know about that or what I was told about that uh, cemetery, the, the, the baby's cemetery is what we would call it. And that is that uh, I don't know much about the babies that didn't have a birth certificate or that. I'm not sure about that, but what I do know is that it was a cemetery for those children that died under the age of eight, because we were told that children under the age of eight were perfect because they were too young to know what they were doing. So they could commit no sin. So if I remember correctly, it was something about their resurrection would be different. So they were put in their own cemetery because they were perfect children never had any chance to do anything wrong in this life. No, and, so, and so they would immediately be able to return and live with Heavenly Father without any judgment. And uh, so they have their own place to be buried. That's what I was told. Beyond that, uh, I would just be guessing. Yeah, I've definitely heard ghost stories and stuff as well. And 
I've never, we've never been able to find anybody that um, can give any more insight on that. So if somebody is listening and they have more insight on that, <laughs> please, please comment, yes. <laughs> reach out. We'd love to hear from you because yeah, I'd like yeah to there's just not, there's just not a lot of information about that. And yeah, we've yeah. never, we've only really heard the ghost stories that really can't be um, like validated, I guess. Or Yeah. But I do know that there were a lot of, uh, I don't know the statistics if it was a lot more than other places in the world or, or that, but there were a lot of young children that died uh, either, either just a few months old, maybe a year old or, or even weeks old that, that would die. And I don't know if that was something that was something that, that was wrong with them that they didn't get the medical attention they needed. Um, I can speak for myself. My arm is still crooked. I didn't get the medical attention I needed when I broke my arm. So, um, you know, they, they didn't, I mean, they had doctors and things out there, but I don't, I don't know that they were the state of the art type of doctor that you would hope for. So it could have just been, didn't have the medical attention they needed. And for that reason they passed on. I'm not sure, but, um, but I do know that there were a lot of young children that did die. I'm I'm reading from a uh, Reuters report that I just pulled up, and it says uh, twin border communities of Hilldale and Colorado City have the world's highest known prevalence of fumarous deficiency. It's an enzyme irregularity that causes severe mental retardation brought on by cousin marriage, and it goes through wow. to diagnose. Uh, all of that and what the what the uh, complication is and and what the uh, what the numbers are, but uh, off the charts in that community compared to the rest of the world, which again is just one of those hard forensic facts that say that there was a problem and right. uh, there's something and to be led, said there. Whether it led to babies dying or you know at a higher rate than others, they suggest in the report. That's the case, but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a just kind of a tired old cop, not a medical person. So <laughs> read that, read that over. But and so the other thing that uh, we, and we spent. By the way, I want to just say in Willie's defense, uh, I stopped at one of his children's graves, one of his babies that was buried there, and I tried to get him to talk, and he got pretty emotional, and then he shut me down. And you both know, I mean, Willie's a big guy, and he's pretty pretty uh um direct and uh was one of those uh tender moments where i was able to see a little bit deeper into his soul that that made me want to just remember whenever i talk about this not to get consumed with whether it was criminal in nature or something else but that there was there were families in that community that lost children that they deeply loved and they buried them there and we can't we can't step away from that, whether it was because of this deficiency that I just mentioned or because of bad childbearing or something else. I don't know, but it doesn't yeah. change the fact that they were deeply injured as human beings when they lost their children. So. And they weren't the ones who picked their partners either. That's an important thing to remember that, you know, they <laughs> aren't getting to choose whether or not they're marrying their first cousins. Very true. You know, they are told who they're going to marry. There's no courtship. There's no, um, yeah, they're not, oh, hey, this is my cousin. This isn't okay. That's not an option for them to, to say no to or else they're leaving their entire community, their entire family, their entire lives. So they are getting married to whoever and don't have the education to even know that that would be a problem. Like, were you ever well, told, like, only, did you know that? Not only that, it, 
not only education wise, but just the, the fact that we assumed that every single marriage was divine revelation from God, that that's who we should be with. We just assumed there's no way that he would put us, put us with someone that would be, that could cause problems like that. That that would cause problems. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, it it was very much. Just once again, not the people. Not the people. It was the leaders that were forcing all of this. You you know, it reminds me of in, in my book, Deceived, I talk about this, but the children talked about how excited they were that they were chosen to go and have sex with the prophet because that meant that they were going to make their way back to God at a faster rate than somebody else, only to be horrified by the assault and uh, the things that happened after. And so it is a uh, it is a goofy thing that children, as you well know, that live in, in uh, cult, destructive cults endure. And all the time you're fighting this amazing relationship you have with this huge family and the fun that you have and all of the community that you have, but it's all being orchestrated in an incredibly destructive way. How confusing. Yes, it is. And, and, and being that that's all you know. I mean, it'd be one thing if we had lived a different life first and then experienced this, then we could, we could step outside the box and say, wait a minute. I've seen different ways to do this. This might be a better option, right? If that's all you know, you just feel and you're told that you're tremendously blessed to be given to a family that's uh, within the gospel and doing everything that God wants them to do. And uh, so you're you're as happy as can be because you feel that as a child that you're the the chosen one. You're the best, uh, (laughs) right? So it's, yeah, you're right. It's confusing. Definitely. Especially once you come out from it and then look back and think, wow, I mean, they have me 100% convinced. Now it, uh, the the last thing I'm going to leave you is it took me eight hours to get there. And I hope people will go over to profiling evil and watch my uh, three-part series where I went back, the investigator returning 20 years later, um, and I I, uh, did actually a couple of segments on that. But the last thing was it took me all day. The very first thing uh, I pressed Willie on was to go into the secret caves, and uh, it took the entire day until uh, just before I left he took me and he actually invited uh, two of his children to come and they had never seen them. And uh, he, he indicated that probably 2% of the church ever knew that those existed and truly saw them uh, up until the time Warren was arrested. You know, those were very secretive. Uh, as a young boy, I was, uh, that those caves weren't too far from my home growing up. So as we were playing around on the hills around the community and that uh, me and some of my brothers did happen upon the caves, but they were so barred up and locked up in chains. And <laughs> I mean, we were, we were wondering what in the world is back there? Like we, we had no idea. We really wanted to go see, but yeah, very secretive. Uh, we were, we had no idea, though. We had, I, to, to this day, I've never been inside. Did Did you ever ask, like, your father or something what was in it? Or was it like you could tell from the look of it, like, I'm not even going to ask? It was one of those things that, yes, we knew that it was something from the church. So we just assumed that it was uh, something to prepare us for whatever the case, a war maybe, or 
or to protect us from the from the evil outsiders or we just assumed that it was something to help protect us because it was in the church's hands and we thought that church had our best interests in mind and all of that so i never asked any of the leaders <laughs> so mike so what did willie tell you so what was in it well, well so the the caves are amazing they they uh inside the caves are uh two bathrooms with with a porcelain bathroom uh uh, components, sinks, and toilets, and uh, there's a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. There's a huge vault. Uh, the vault is uh, it was impenetrable. Uh, now is just wide open, but uh, it was a place where <coughs> explosives were stored, which were part of the wow. ghost stories that I wanted to know about. Uh, there were caches of weapons that were stored in the caves, and of course, a huge amount of food storage because it was not apocalyptic escape for the leadership of the church. And if you watch those videos at the end, uh, Willie was really uncomfortable about being on video, even near the caves. But at the end, <laughs> Willie videoed me with my iPhone talking about the caves inside the caves. Oh, so he wow. was filming me. So, I will link. I'll link those videos below in the description, yes, so everyone amazing. can go straight to those videos because I want to see that. I haven't even yeah. seen that video. We went. We went full circle, and uh, and I doubt Willie and I will ever uh, have another lunch together. But it was uh, <laughs> it was incredible. And and to his defense, again, whether it's uh, his own personal penance or for some other reason, he. Uh, not only sued Warren and, and the church and got a bucket of money, but he's tried to do some good things in the community. And does that make up for all those years? I don't know. I'm going to leave that to somebody else to judge. But, uh, but what it did was it, it, those ghost stories that we chased for many years, I was able to finally put to rest. And so that was a, that was a pretty uh, incredible couple of days for me to spend out there in Colorado city, Hilldale. And to get some insight in some of the areas that most people will never get, so that's, uh, that's from pretty my, amazing. my former enemy too. Yeah. I mean, think <laughs> yeah. about that. that's like pretty wild. <laughs> wow. Well, that's pretty incredible. Um, did we want to end on the? Um, so there's just one last question we wanted to bring up before we let you go, if you have time. Sure. Just the most regarding the most recent revelation, one of the most recent revelations from Warren Jeffs. Uh, which we find very concerning. And we wanted to kind of bring it to you and see if you had any insight on the best way to go about informing people about this, uh, because it, it, it seems like it's hinting to mass suicide uh, in some sense or another. And uh, so it's, it's just very concerning for us. We've made a video on it. Uh, but we're just trying to make sure that, that this type of thing doesn't actually happen. Yeah, we've had a lot of people ask, have you asked the authority or have you brought this up to authorities? And, um, you know, and we've been kind of pondering and trying to figure out what a good move is to bring this to authorities. And then they're like, we're going to be talking to Mike this weekend. We thought you were a good person to ask about that. And maybe you could share also with our viewers <laughs> a little bit of what the authorities can or can't do in a situation like this where there is um, information that concerns people, the general public, what can they do? And then what can or can't authorities do when they hear about this? So in, in now um, 30 years of uh, following cult 
destructive cult behaviors and looking at these kinds of things over and again. I watched, by the way, you, I thought you did a great job on your video. It was it yesterday or the day before where you talked about the revelations. And um, I would recommend everybody go back and watch those. It really becomes difficult to forecast what may or may not happen as a result of that because this challenge of within five years in order to to gain these highest kingdoms of exaltation, it becomes definitional into what death means. Is it death from all of the carnal world, or is it figuratively uh, something different, or is it very specifically your life comes to an end? Who knows? But you cannot, you cannot just treat these kinds of things, especially with someone who has proven time and time again that uh, revelation will come at the penalty of those who follow, like separation from family, being stripped of your children, having your spouse taken away, being told you can't be intimate, uh, being told whether you can drink milk or not. All of those are past behaviors that could be predictive of future behaviors. And the best way over and again that cults maintain control and gain (coughs) members is through extremism, by asking you to do something that someone else wouldn't do because you're going to be blessed and confirmed to receive exaltation or special blessings or special dispensations. So I would suspect that local authorities already have heard about this, but I would not suggest in any way that you do nothing. I would make sure you send an email to the attorney general, to the field office in St. George of the FBI, to the Washington County Sheriff's Office, just to kind of clean your own hands of a piece of information that you heard about that they probably already know about. And what can they do? Probably nothing. They can try to talk to a community just like we did in the early 90s when we said through Safe at Home, Sam, if you ever had a problem or if you saw something uncomfortable, you can call us. We're going to help you. Well, nobody called. Nobody believed. And nobody was going to risk exaltation by calling the police. And so will those who are deeply embedded uh, make that call? Probably not. Will those who are on a fence maybe think, this is one more time that I've heard about wackiness and it's time for me to get out. And so that's why transparency is so darn important. And destructive cults do not believe in transparency. They believe in secrecy. Call it sacred, call it whatever you want. It's secrecy. And transparency is uh, the only thing that's going to help in situations like this. And I'll tell you, I look at mainstream religion. I look at the Latter-day Saint faith, and people, again, like to hammer the Latter-day Saint faith. Um, There's a big difference between people who preach that you look heavenward toward a loving God of some kind, whether it's you know, uh, a, a Muslim's belief or a Jewish belief of who God is, a Christian belief of a trinity, 
uh, or the Buddhist belief of, of worshiping a big gold statue and, and a man who walked the earth. There's a big difference between pointing eyes heavenward and pointing eyes toward a leader who's sitting in a prison in Texas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, We'll definitely be following Mike's advice um, and definitely reaching out to those authorities. So for those of you who are watching, um, we'll definitely be making those phone calls and trying to do our part and For those of you who are watching that maybe um, are on the fence or in the process of leaving or transitioning, um, again, our information, please reach out to us. We are more than happy to help in any way. We also will have the information for Holding Out Help. Um, They are an awesome organization in Utah to help people transitioning and leaving polygamy. And they have helped a lot. And they have helped so many people, people that we personally know that they have helped um, be able to gain educations or jobs or so many different resources to be able to help get on your own feet. And that is what our cause is for our Christmas donation that you can donate below is for holding out help this month as well. So just wanted to shout that out again um, for anybody who's watching, because sometimes we feel like, okay, you know, this is um, just informational for people on the outside, but we've had more and more people reach out to us who have either recently left or, um, even some people that have been on the inside that are still just kind of peeking at the outside world. And we want you to know that we are here for you. And there's a whole community of people who want you to be safe. Yes. Yes. Thank so. you. And thank you, Mike. We really appreciate you being here with us today. Uh, such an, an interesting perspective you have uh, coming from the outside, looking in and, and helping the helping do your part the best you could. I'm sorry I probably treated you like garbage when you when you were out there, but uh, <laughs> I was a young kid in those nah, days. No, so. you were, yeah, you were one of those <laughs> dirty-faced little boys that just ran away. So. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> but we appreciate you. We appreciate all the work that you've done to try to help the community and that you continue to do in helping people understand more about these communities and understand that it's the leaders, not the people. So we appreciate the work you do so much. Yes. Well, thank you, and thanks for what you're doing to get this word out. You guys are so much fun to be with. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. So we'll talk to you all soon.